Welcome to the Title Block Live, uh, the next uh, installment for May 14th, 2020. I'm your host, of course, Michael Cruz, and this week we'll be taking your questions uh, about video and projection design. Um, and I can't seem to uh, grab the video from Hugh, but let me just do this. <laughs> Make sure you don't miss out on our next episode by clicking subscribe. Uh, and I want to point everyone to the titleblock.com uh, where you can find interviews um, and uh, as well as linked show notes to several of the guests that we've interviewed on the, on the podcast uh, and on uh, TitleBlock Live. Uh, and let me introduce now um, tonight's uh, remarkable guests. Uh, first, Hugh Conacher is a lighting and multimedia designer and a photographer whose practice is based in live performance. Hugh lives and works on Treaty 1 territory, also known as Winnipeg. He's collaborated with choreographers, directors, visual artists, uh, and dance and theater companies throughout Canada and around the world in venues large and small. Hugh, welcome to the Title Block Thank Live. you. Nice to be here. Thanks. Awesome. Uh, Cameron Fraser is a multidisciplinary artist and designer from Vancouver working in dance, theater, circus, which I hope he will tell us all about, and opera. Cameron, welcome to the Title Block Live. Thank you very much for having me, and I'm happy to talk about as much circus as you would like to. Fantastic. Uh, T. Erin Grubra is an artist working professionally as a visual storyteller. She collaborates with directors, builders, performers, and technicians to bring experiences to audiences across Canada. She's committed to combining the powers of visual communication and the passion and emotion of live performance. Erin, uh, welcome to the Title Block Live. Hi, thanks so much for having me, everybody. Uh, Jamie Nesbitt, who's not here right now, but will be joining us soon, is a Vancouver-based projection, projection designer and has worked across Canada, including the Shaw and Stratford Festivals, uh, with, uh, and with uh, great choreographers like Crystal Pite. Uh, we spoke to Jamie on episode 49 of the title block. Uh, he'll join us when he is able uh, later in tonight's broadcast. Um, and I've just, I've erased someone's name. Who did I forget? Oh, I think it's Sean Newenhouse. Yes, Sean Newenhouse is a video and projection designer and producer based in Vancouver who has worked nationally and internationally in theater, opera, and special events. Uh, outside of his theatrical work, he runs a production company specializing in large-scale projection and media production for corporate projects. Sean, welcome to the uh, Title Block Live. Oops, mic on. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. <laughs> I, picked the, I picked the right name. That's excellent. Um, and then I guess I might, somehow I, I got your bio over and then I erased the name, which is awesome. Um, Emily Susanna is a projection set and lighting designer based out of Jujage, or otherwise known as Montreal. They are the co-founder of Potato Cakes Digital, a production design and digital arts collective whose mandate orbits around the integration of technology into traditional art forms and the exploration of how visual art can help facilitate the telling of a story. In the before times, they worked nationally, uh, though now they create elaborate in-house installations for their cats, which I think is fantastic. <laughs> Emily, welcome to the Title Vlog Live. Thanks. Uh, happy to be here. Uh, fantastic. Did I pronounce your last name correctly? You did, surprisingly. No one usually gets it right the first time. I'm so happy. It's the first time I've ever said it out loud, so that's great. Welcome, everyone. Um, and now I'm going to throw it to uh, Connor Moore, who's a Vancouver-based set lighting and projection designer. Uh, Connor, you may begin the interrogation. <laughs> thank you very much, Michael. And thank you to all the panelists being here tonight. And thank you to everybody watching on YouTube Live. Uh, for everyone on YouTube Live, if you have any questions for the panelists, submit them in the chat and Michael will uh, shoot them over to us. 
So I'm going to ask the first question to each person in turn, just so we get voices identified for the podcast feed. But then after that first question, we'll just do a laid back free for all and have a nice relaxed conversation. So the first question tonight is, who are some projection designers whose work inspired you to become a designer? So I'll start with you, Hugh. Well, Yosa Sabota, of course, um, being the, uh, well, yes, Yosa Sabota. But my interest in projection design actually stemmed from, um, from lighting dance, because that's what my background is. Um, and so I was, even back in the 80s, I was playing with slide projectors as a way to, as a different kind of way to light dancers in, from different directions, and that's sort of how it developed. But Sabota, for sure. Amazing. Thank you for that. Uh, Sean, who are some projection designers whose work inspired you to become a designer? I, I saw this question and went, oh, crap. Um, <laughs> and, you know, and thinking about it the last little moments while I've been getting this thing fired up, uh, was the, the, the stuff that really piqued my interest were the concerts and such, big spectacles that I saw when I was a teen. That, uh, you know, and I don't, I don't know who ultimately were the designers themselves. It was Mark Fisher was the scenic design, the show designer for the Big Pink Floyd stuff, and and U two, and and you know, seeing video wall tools being integrated into sets in really weird ways, and, and also traditional media still being part of it. There was a, a moment in one of the Floyd tours where they basically had this gigantic overhead projector that was covering a 200 foot stage. And at the end of one song, they took an acetate and scribbled over it with a Sharpie marker. And it was just such a really uh, a cool thing to see done visually. Um, and beyond that sort of in, in work that's done, uh, more recently, in the same way, I don't really know who the individuals are, but the work of, you know, Lepage's studio, Ex Machina, and, and I think that speaks a bit to the idea how much of design for video is a team effort, that, you know, there's a lot of people that are part of that process. So, anyway, that's my starting word. Is somebody, do we have a bunch of, I'm getting a bunch of audio scrumbling, like the mic. Is that anybody? No. I can hear it, but I wasn't moving. Okay. All right. I'll just go on, Connor. <laughs> After we're done this, we can we can unmute everybody, but there's like somebody was doing somebody was doing one of this forever. Anyways, go on, please. Uh thank you for that, Sean. Um moving on to you, Emily. Who are some projection designers whose work inspired you to become a designer? Yeah, that's a really hard one. Um in part because I feel like really early on in the in the point of inspiration to to do something as a career um there's like so many influences and uh so little saved brain space for who they were um but definitely in university studying things like italian futurism and looking at like piscator and really really like early experiments where things were like really um, bold and, and raw and often quite related to to storytelling which is a lot of like my um, personal interest in projection design I'm come to it from a very like dramaturgical perspective um, so yeah like also lots of little like going to little installations non-theater based um, 
visual art forms that then you see and you're like, oh, cool, how could I bring that into the theatrical world? Amazing, thank you for that. Uh, Cam, coming to you next. Uh, who are some projection design designers whose work inspired you? Uh, well, I kind of came into the design world from a circus background, like that's kind of what I started in. And so that very heavily shaped, I think, my aesthetic and what I like to see. Um, and then as a child, I was always into like animated content, like Beast Wars and Reboot and those kind of like early animation or digital animation uh, projects. Um, and really it wasn't until uh, I took some time off for the Olympics and came back to Vancouver to do a show uh, and took some classes at Emily Carr, learning animation and things like that, that really, I guess, showed me that I could put those things together and, and do it as a career, like projection design. I didn't really, it wasn't a separate thought for me. Like it kind of fell into the, oh, I'm a performer. So those are the things that other people do area. Um, but once I started learning about them, they really started to marry a lot of the interests that I have together. Um, and so once I went, like, really, I think working with Jamie uh, Nesbitt at the start of my career really inspired me uh, to do this because <laughs> he's, I think he's got a good aesthetic eye and uh, he helped me level up my own skills and was the first person that I actually could talk to about projection design because I didn't know any other designers in town. Um, so yeah, I think it was a combination of my experience in the circus and then uh, the passions that I had as a child and then kind of new discoveries as I was finishing university that kind of steered me into this discipline and this adventure. Awesome. Thank you for that. And Jamie, thank you for joining us, showing up. Oh, sure. It shows up just as I'm complimenting him. Wonderful. Nice things about you. <laughs> Um, I'm just going through one by one and asking this first question, so I'll go to Aaron, then I'll come to you next. Okay. Uh, Aaron, who are some projection designers whose work inspired you to become a designer? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I don't know, my answer might be a little bit less uh, like clever and intelligent than my colleagues. Um, it's sort of a strange journey how I landed uh, in visual design at all, and in video design especially. Um, especially for those who know me and are totally confused that I use a computer to make my living. Um, but actually what happened to me is as a very arrogant second year theater student, I went and saw an opera um, and they had decided to use their very expensive projector and got their company's graphic designer or somebody to put together some random visual content media. Um, and then someone, presumably the director or one of the other designers who had it suddenly thrust on their plate unfairly, made some decisions about when and what and how it would get projected and it was abysmal. It was completely useless, ancillary to the production, it helped nothing. Um, everyone is laughing and smiling because we've all seen these and I was, had no interest in video at that time as a second year student. I didn't even own a computer yet, fun fact. Um, and I literally came out of that opera and all I said to people who asked me about that opera was, we must do better than this. I was so ashamed that this is what our Canadian theater, quote unquote, I'm using air quotes, was capable of producing. Um, and of course it was not. At that time we had amazing designers, uh, some of the people who are even on this panel who were busy and working and redefining what that field looked like all over the country. But in terms of what I had recently been exposed to, this incensed me. 
Um, and so I became, uh, that was sort of a spark that, that smoldered for a long time. And eventually as I got more skills and developed as a designer uh, near the end of my training, it really started to, it really ignited. And then I was actually really, really lucky in my first uh, 18 months out of school, I did have the opportunity of uh, assisting Sean at Stratford and learning a lot of the fundamental skills that weren't available in my schooling at the time. So, um, yeah, but essentially it all came for me from uh, visual storytelling, from this concept of, as Emily pointed out, uh, dramaturgy and storytelling and this idea that this is a tool we're meant to be using to tell a story and not just like some fancy fun gear, which is essentially what I witnessed in this opera. Like they had an expensive projector, so they thought we better use it. Um, that wasn't enough for me. And I think for everyone on this panel, that's not enough. Um, and we're kind of out in the world proving that. Um, but yeah, I began my world, uh, I don't know, my life as a dancer. And so when I began doing lighting design in my third year at the U of A, I really discovered that I could move again all of a sudden after years of, um, you know, having had to leave that world because of an injury, all of a sudden, all these fundamental things I understood about rhythm and timing and, um, how to tell a story on stage, I could use them again. And then that all translated in, into this real passion for using visual storytelling and, and tools like projected media. So anyways, slightly less gracious entrance, but uh, here we are. Amazing, thank you for that, Aaron. And Jamie, thank you for joining us tonight. Uh, who are some projection designers whose work inspired you to become a designer? Hi, everyone. Uh, I think initially it was uh, Robert Gardner and uh, doing some work for the electric company. Um, I was an acting student at the time and um, saw some of the work that he was doing with Kim and Jonathan and David and, and Kevin, um, the electric company. And um, at the time was kind of a, was a flailing, failing actor and uh, uh, was looking for something different. I was really into film too at the time and uh, saw some electric company shows and was pretty blown away by what they were doing. And, um, and then also Tim Matheson's, uh, who's, you know, you know, a legend in Vancouver projection history. Like he just, he was doing slide projector shows as was Sean was doing lots of really cool stuff early, early days. Um, so Tim really helped me and I, I assisted him on a bunch of shows too, early days. Um, yeah, and they were um, they were fundamental, um, especially Robert and and Tim. Um, Robert really brought me under his wing, and we did uh, studies in motion together. I assisted him on that show, um, and and that ended up touring a bunch. So I just busted busted my chops on on those on that show in particular, and then um, assisted Sean on a couple shows early days too. And um, he was really gracious uh, and uh, brought me on to some big shows. Um, got to see some of his work, uh, which was really great. And um, yeah, then just uh, started doing my own shows and here I am, just sitting um, in a forest. <laughs> Amazing, thank you for that. Yeah, so I'll go back, go ahead. That, sorry, that's not a background, that's an actual, that's your actual place where you're being. Yeah, this is uh, where I'm hiding out uh, in COVID times. That's fantastic. Bowen Island. Yeah, Bowen Island. So I'll throw the, uh, the rest of the questions out to the group as a whole. So everyone just feel free to jump in however you like and definitely feel free to unmute and just sort of have a normal conversation amongst yourselves. So the next question I want to go to is, what do you wish designers in other disciplines knew about the video design process? 
Um, I'll jump in on that one. Uh, so really early in my video design life, I started a small collective with two colleagues called the Show Stages Video Collective. And we actually started that group that was with um, Joel Adria and Elijah Lindenberger. And we actually started that group because of that question. Um, the thing with video and especially the kind of video that I was talking about a little bit earlier that I was inspired to want to make is it, it doesn't exist at all on its own. So it's totally pointless if you don't consider how sound activates it, if you don't consider how the actors respond to it, if you don't consider how it elevates the text or the story or the dance. Um, in my mind anyways, it was totally pointless on its own. Um, and I had seen all kinds of fine art installations and other work that proved that point to me that I didn't, I wasn't interested in it on its own. Um, although since then I've seen tons of stuff that I think is incredible and you know, way beyond me. But I think that concept of integration is, it's like a word we use a lot, but um, it's, it's so fundamental to how good video design is developed. And so we actually went as far as to start a group where we had a sound designer, technologist, video lighting set costume designer in one ensemble. And we worked together on projects all the time. And that kind of um, collaborative rigor is what really allowed us to establish a concept for how these things could be used without having to expand tech time, without having to, um, you know, add resources to the plates of small, especially at that time we're working with very small independent theater companies. Um, so essentially it's this idea that if you want video design, this is going to be a team effort. It really isn't going to be something that like, oh, the projection designer's in charge and I never have to think about that. And I think a lot of set designers uh, that I've worked with who kind of brought me in because they said, oh, I have a video design concept, so let's get a video designer so I don't have to deal with it. Um, and there's had to be a lot of education in that and not, not in a bad way. Like I've had designers who I love and admire who've said to me, like, I really don't want to deal with this and I totally respect their perspective. Um, so it just becomes a bit about education of, well, it can't really function at all if we aren't all a part of it um, and if we are, aren't all using it. And I think an argument can be made that that is true of all the elements, but I think that we have become a bit siloized in terms of how we function as designers for the sake of self-preservation and managing to get through the 10 shows a season we need to do or, or more to make a living. Um, and when it comes to doing really excellent video work, I really believe that that doesn't really function. And so finding a way within the context of how we all work and how we survive our lives, um, but still managing to put in that extra collaborative effort together as designers, not solely relying on the director to relay all that information, um, becomes a huge part for me of what I've seen work on the shows that have worked. They don't all. Yeah, for sure. Like, I would, I would argue that any design needs to be treated almost as an actor in a piece. Like, you need to be able to plot the, the trajectory of what the design is doing, the motivations behind each point. There should never be, in my opinion, anything that just feels like added on or, or put there just because it's cool or like without a, a good reason, everything needs to be motivated in the same way that you would look at an actor's motivations in a scene. So if video I find, cause it's often one of the last elements that's added and like historically is a, is a newer aspect to theater. Um, though, if you look at the history of projection, like you could argue that shadow puppets kind of falls in that in that realm. People have been trying to make things that appear like video for a really, really long time. Um, but all that to say that video needs to be thought of from day one if you want video a video design, and the designers should be 
of, of any ilk should be included in all these conversations. The best projects I find are ones where the designers are free to communicate amongst themselves. There isn't this feeling of like a hierarchy that needs to be followed. Um, a lot of really great projects I've worked on will have like a WhatsApp with the whole design crew and maybe the director's there or maybe they're not, but it's a space that um, design jamming can happen and a lot of really, really good work comes out of that. And also that other designers shouldn't be afraid to ask for things from video designers. Like if a set designer doesn't know if a projection is gonna work or a projector placement is gonna be okay or a material is gonna be acceptable, they shouldn't withhold that information. Bringing that up and talking with your projection designer as soon as possible helps a lot. Yeah, I think it's the big one is just getting involved as early as possible. So many of the things that I've done over the years, video was something that got plugged in later on. So the, the projects that I've really enjoyed the most were the ones where the projection design has been part of a dialogue from the get-go um, and making sure that uh, you have the chance to work with the rest of the team to answer those questions, explore how you can take that, the storytelling and, and augment it and uh, help everything move along coherently as opposed to something that just feels like, oh, someone has said, oh, there's going to be a video moment here. It happens and then it, it, you, you lose the opportunity to really help integrate and, and make it cohesive. So. Emily, I think you're, there's something on your mic, maybe. Is it Emily? Um, yeah, I think it's actually Sean's mic is rubbing his collar. I can oh, just, okay. Yeah, there we okay. go. Thank you, everybody. I appreciate what Emily was saying about the video needing to be treated like a character in the storytelling of the play. I think that's super, super important. And... Um, in some ways, more so than any of the other design disciplines. I've often been in situations where I'm lighting and doing the video design for a piece. And uh, as, as much work as that is, I actually really enjoy it because then I don't have to deal with the lighting designer um, because I am the lighting designer. <laughs> and um, so it makes, it makes my job as a video designer easier. It also makes my job as a lighting designer easier as well. I wish that um, that video and lighting designers actually would be brought in much closer to the beginning of the creative process. In fact, in some cases, new, I work a lot in dance. I'm often involved um, in new creations that don't have scripts. Um, but this also applies to plays, that if, if, uh, if we as designers were brought in right at the get-go from, from the conceptual uh, thinking and talking about a piece, then um, everything that we do could be more integrated and, and um, uh, not just be slapped on top at the last moment, which is something I personally don't do or I try to avoid. Yeah, I think it's incumbent on us to, to ask for that. You know, yeah. when we sign our contract, um, you know, sometimes, you, like someone mentioned, it, it does happen late and it happens too often um, than I'd like it to. Um, but if you do get contracted earlier, like everyone else, I think it's incumbent on us to, you know, ask the director to, to collaborate and, and ask the set designer to collaborate. And I, I find generally people are really willing to collaborate. You know, yeah. um, I don't think that I don't think it's an issue of people not wanting to or people wanting to hold tight to their concept. I think if one, you know, asks to collaborate, then generally people are receptive 
to that request. So I think it's just more on, it's more on us to, to, to go out and, and, and make it happen. Because I think for me, that's like the, the best part, like where there's, there's no, no budget is, is involved yet. And, um, and it's all in, you know, in, in dreams and, and thoughts. And so um, I, I really enjoy that process. I, I couldn't imagine doing a show without it now. So mm -hmm. I agree. Yeah. The ideation phase, like that's what we're all, that's what we're all doing it for. <laughs> Yeah, I think if we like set up expectations. Actually, come to think of it, I mean, this COVID thing, like maybe it's great. We could just dream up shows. Yeah, yeah, totally. It's all conceptual. <laughs> yeah. Just the fun part only. Yeah, I just did the most amazing design right now. It was incredible. <laughs> <laughs> I always ask to be involved with the designers right from the get-go with the company that engages me. And so I make it a part of my contract, essentially. And so, um, and not just with the designers, but with everybody, with the entire creative team. It makes it more fun for me, too. Well, I find in that uh, in in the not like a non-script based creative process mm -hmm. that helps so drastically. Like circus mm -hmm. is very is not uh, a scripted process at all. It's very ethereal and like it's about what works in the room and how it works in the room. And so, in a lot of the circus creative projects that I've worked on on a design side, it's very collaborative and everybody is working together and often we'll be leaning over to each other and you're saying, you know, like how, how might this work? Or we're really shaping the direction of the creative process as a team. Um, so that every element is integrated in that way that doesn't feel like it's been slapped on after the fact. And don't get me wrong. Yeah, that certainly happens sometimes when time is short and uh, uh, shows are many, but uh, yeah, that idea of working together as a team right from the get go, I think speaks to the time that it takes for us to actually develop a video design that works and that isn't just slapped on, right? Like yeah. the time of creating the content itself is, is a, a large commitment for us. And so being able to do that in a room with other people that are creating on the same project uh, so that your discoveries can be shared with them and their discoveries can be shared with you goes a long way to producing that gold standard of work. I and the kind of underpinning, like the kind of underpinning point that we're all making here is the relationships, right? So it's so interesting because on a first production with a new director or on a, you know, if I've never done a show with Hugh before and suddenly we're doing one together, even if we have the exact same philosophy, until we actually develop a relationship with one another and with each other's mm -hmm. creative process, we're not necessarily going to get there. And I think that was something that I was so grateful I learned with the Show Stages Collective is, you know, in the first two years, even though we were working together all the time, we still didn't really get it. And then once I'd figured that out, it was like, okay, so how can I fast track these relationships when I'm developing with new designers, when I'm working with new directors? And how can I figure out how far we're gonna get? How close are we actually gonna get? And so based on how either close or far together, you know, far apart we are, then you can sort of set the standard for like, okay, well, this is what we can achieve on this project. Because I think what we all, you know, sort of the undertone of all of this is at the end of the day, we're all just a very small group of people putting together something extraordinary. That's what all theater kind of works out to be. Um, and, and how those relationships evolve and how you maintain them becomes a little bit the, the, the sort of the height of the bar that you can achieve in a lot of ways. So. Yeah, I find like those relationships typically in, in situations where video designers aren't brought in at the beginning, at least in my experience, is I'm finding as the, the creative process is coming to an end, those relationships are developed to the point where we're comfortable to make those risky suggestions or you know and so having that opportunity to develop those relationships far sooner so that once we are in the room there's not that same uh not anxiety but apprehension of sharing because you're not sure 
the idea is trusted or right or you know those apprehensions that are there. Um, There's nothing better than on the first day of preview. Preview. Like, <laughs> ah, we finally figured it out. Oh, Great. Just in time to never see each other again. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I want to delve a little more deeply into something that both uh, Hugh and Cameron touched on a little bit, which is how is the video design process different for non-text-based work like dance and circus? Hugh, do you want to shoot first? I've got a complaining bird sitting beside me. Sure. Um, it's an interesting question. I'm not quite sure. My brain doesn't work any differently. So... Um, I do, however, find that when I'm doing work uh, in the dance world, it tends to be interactive. So I tend to take the I tend to take the movement that the dancers are creating on the stage and ingest it somehow into my computer, and then spit it out as some sort of an image or an environment or some sort of thing that tracks them or whatever it is that I'm doing with it. And I so I so in that way the 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 technique is different, but I don't think that my thought process into how that happens. And actually, as I'm thinking about, as I'm thinking about it, and of course, it's a completely different technique. It's a completely different way of thinking about it. But but um, but it doesn't come out of my brain any differently. Somehow, I'm not quite sure what that means. Maybe Cameron, you can do better. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, I missed that last part. Um... That's okay. <laughs> So what am I doing better then? <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> um, when it comes to non-script-based work, like, I don't know. I find a lot in circus I'm giving a place or a uh, yeah, contextual tie. Like, it's more environmentally based and, like, mm. the through line of the journey that the characters are taking is more visually represented because there isn't that vocal acknowledgement of passage of time or space or any of those sorts of things. Um, so a lot of the content that I'm generating is, uh, in the circus world is more, uh, informative in terms of fleshing out the storyline and, and more so I would say in theater where it's more, uh, uh, supporting narrative, uh, in, in circus, it's kind of, at least in, in my experience in circus, it's kind of directing the through line of a show or how, um, how that story progresses visually, um, because, costumes help and hair and music help but uh, hair and makeup and music help but there's not that direct placement that we get in a script where you have a, a spoken line about where they are the time of day or that you know there's those uh, language references to time and place that we get in theater or opera that we don't necessarily get in dancer circus so you're showing you're showing environment you're creating environments you're creating spaces you're creating uh uh that, that visual language that that kind of carries the through line for a project. Is it, did I do better here? I don't know. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I think we said, sort of said the same thing. <laughs> yeah, it's like video, it's, I, I don't know. I feel video is different for, for circus than it is for theater because it, it is itself, a, a, um, like Emily was saying, it's a, it's a character, um, but it's a character that people don't recognize. Like often I'm struggling often the feedback I get is it, it's too distracting because um, I'm working with kids, right? And so the focus has to stay on what the kids are doing. 
Um, and so, or sorry, it can't be distracting, not that it's too distracting. It can't be distracting, it can't pull focus, it can't, which is like a tenant of video design, like a good video design is a good, like a good lighting design. You don't notice it, it just happens, right? Um, and so uh, you're kind of, you're, you're, you're combating this need for that consistent through line with the focus can't, it can't really pull focus. It has to be the, the, the supplementary or the background. And so, cause you have these people doing like crazy spectacular skills. Right. And so you're trying to balance this, like how informative can it be without pulling too much focus? And that's an interesting, it's an interesting balance that I think you can only find from being in the room, you know, like working on my own and looking at it on my screen. I can say that it's not too distracting, but until you see it superimposed with that person hanging from a silk or an acrobat flying through the air, like you don't really know how it's going to draw focus. Um, and if it's going to draw the performer's focus too, like are they going to catch it in their eye if there's a lot of fast moving light or what, what other concerns are there than just the visual for the audience? Like, is there a safety concern with, with the bright flash from the video or is there, there are more of those types of conversations I think that happen than would typically happen in, in a theater world or, or an opera world. Abigail agrees. <laughs> Does anyone else want to jump in on that? Um, I would say in terms of, I mean, I don't have any circus experience, but in terms of, of dance or other non-narrative forms, I find that the whole process tends to be a lot more open to experiment. Mm -hmm. Like, I would agree with that. Particularly yeah. if you have some form of interactivity, like you, you, the end result of whatever patch you're building or programming is probably going to be very different from what you started, but you'll like bring things in the room day one start playing and there there tends to be a lot more of like a, a free form design process than than otherwise yeah like in a typical setting where i build a cue sheet after reading a script and then build cues based off that cue sheet in in a in a, a non-script based creative process it's more of a discussion that you're having with the conceptualizer or the director or the dramaturge or the choreographer and then you're showing up ready to go with five options for everything that you've discussed. And then those options tend to evolve through the residency process or through the, the tech process. Um, and so it is really a, a, a free form design process in the sense that like there's not, there's not a, a, a cue and a, a cue that you have to make for it. There's like a cue idea that is discussed and then you make 30 options or five options, whatever time is allowing for, right? Um, and then you kind of build, that's how the whole show gets built. It's, it's mm -hmm. very experimental and it's very, does this work? Does that, like, this is what I was thinking. No, it doesn't, okay. How, what do you like? What don't you like? And how can we capitalize on the things that worked and, and remove the things that don't? Um, yeah. But it's a very organic evolutionary process. I tend to sit in rehearsal a lot with the interactive stuff. And uh, so by the time I get into that, because I'm trying stuff all the time, I'm actually building the show through, through the process of rehearsal as a choreographer is creating a piece and the dancers are learning it. And so um, by the time we get into the theater, I'm not necessarily presenting options because it's all been done already in the rehearsal process. So we're actually just getting down to teching the thing and making the actual tech of it work in the theater, which is a very, very luxurious position to be in because of course that rarely happens in the theater. Although I do like, I, I, I'm, I'm a guy who sits in rehearsal a lot. So I, I tend to be doing everything in rehearsal and trying to um, uh, 
have as much have as many decisions made as I can by the time I get into the theater because there's time is often so tight, especially in the larger theaters. Same. I love being in residence. I think it's a, yeah, it's like too. the best part of the the process. Yeah. It's my favorite time. It's my favorite time by far. Yeah. My least favorite time is three days before tech when I'm re-rendering <laughs> all the cues that I have to re-render. <laughs> <laughs> You know. oh, you mean at 3 a.m. the night before tech? Well, I mean like the last day of tech and that I've been up for three days rendering <laughs> all the final cues so that I can put them in on the last day of tech. This is a wonderful segue to the next question I wanted to ask, which is how do you manage the added workload on shows that require significant content creation? Adobe render queue. Yeah, like just less sleep. <laughs> yeah. Not complicated. You just sleep less, or you get more computers and and you more attach them all together. Yeah, yeah. and more like computers, Dropbox and Adobe Render Queue, so that you can set it to render, and then as soon as it's done rendering, it automatically uploads to Dropbox, so it's ready in Florida the next day. Right, Jamie? <laughs> I think there's a difference between rendering and creation, though. Yeah, sure. That's Huge. most definitely, most definitely. Yeah. I mean, oftentimes, if you have a big creation show, that means you're gonna have a lot of rendering at the other end of uh, other end of. It. Um, but uh, I think, like, to tell back a little bit earlier when we were talking about our relationships with people, I think a really important stage in the process early on is to um, talk to the director about what it takes to make something happen, uh, what it takes to create something. Um, and because if you can manage a director's expectations, um, then your workload will be more manageable instead of, uh, you know, them asking for the moon. You, you haven't managed their expectations whatsoever. And then you deliver what you deliver is thin because you can only do as much as one person can. Um, as we all know, I don't know how many people like actually animate um, in the group, but animation um, in After Effects is a super time-consuming aspect. In fact, it's the most time-consuming aspect of what I do. So um, letting someone know... Oh, that's a it weird. sounds like somebody's getting murdered. <laughs> it's a very spooky door. <laughs> I didn't think of this background that there'd be a murder going on, but uh, <laughs> I think they're okay. Be <laughs> after the call. Um... <laughs> Yeah, so, um, yeah, I'm always trying to uh, uh, talk to the director about, you know, what it's going to take to make something. Because I think there's this assumption that because we consume media at such a voracious pace, um, we assume that it, it's that easy to make it as it is, as it is to consume it. Um, and that is so far from the truth. Um, and, you know, someone sees this movie or whatever and like, let's make that. And it's like, no, that took, you know. <laughs> 200 7,000 people, people 7,000 hours yeah looking at a second you know at each person works on a second for a week or whatever you know so mm -hmm. um it, it's a it's a big a big issue in my world as I get older and like don't you know I have family and like it's like managing people's expectation and trying to manage your workload is super important yeah I think advocating for how how our process works because even in this call every single one of us a change that might take me two minutes because of how I built it in the first place. Yeah. Emily might be doing, you know, might be doing it a totally different way. And it's going to take her six hours to render. And, you know, Cameron might've come up with an even faster way. It's going to take him one second compared to my 10 or whatever. 
to get something, you know, for the same type of cue. So for directors too, their expectations, even if they have done video before, may not align with the reality of your process or the kind of content you create. Or even the equipment that you have. Mm -hmm. like, I mean, you have the type you know. of, you know, yeah, like Emily has a super powerful computer and I have hired her before to come and be the person who solves that problem for me <laughs> of too much content, too little time. Two designers are better than one. Yeah. Um, you know, and so then it's like, great. Okay. Emily can do this cue because I know that she has the setup to handle it. Whereas if it was for me, I would just tell the director like, mm, tough titties, that's never going to happen. Um, you know, but because I know that the director's expectations are X and the budget is Y, then I was actually able to bring someone on who could meet those expectations. So that's one way I've managed it. And that's something I learned from designers like April Visco, who used to hire me as an assistant all the time so that she could do like X number of projects and that I've started sort of doing now too where i hire on people who can help or who can be there to to learn and then also you know tackle things which is a mixed blessing of course because uh, sometimes as i'm sure sean will remember from when i was his assistant sometimes something you assign to an assistant does not get done that well and then you have to do it yourself anyways um but at times it can be a useful tool um yeah and i yeah. think that language about, you know, this is a five minute fix versus a five hour fix a lot of times if you tell the director well that's going to take five hours then they can think about that and say, oh my God, I don't care about it that much. Like that's the five minute fix. Or they'll say, yeah, this is the number one thing that came out of tech for me today. We have to fix it. And then it's, you know, so that, I think you're really right there, Jamie, you struck it on the head, just developing that language with your director. And if you don't do it early enough, then, then you really pay um, in terms of, of being able to produce something that's really good in the end. Well, I, I think the, uh, to tag onto that, the most frequent note I get from Jamie when we're working together is don't spend much time on it because you can, like even the smallest little things you can spend mm -hmm. yes. five hours on and it won't be any better than when you started or it'll be absolutely incredible, right? Like, I don't know. I find with After Effects, there's so many, or any animation tools, there are so many different ways to achieve the same outcome mm -hmm. that the way I do it is a different way from the way that each of us does it, right? And so mm -hmm. I think you were really you hit the nail on the head when you said it, it, it's this time, like educating the directors on how much time it takes to do these things. And it's that it's not a, a simple Google search or a simple uh, stock footage find, right? There's more that goes into it than that. Um, yeah, and it's also, I think, fighting for the right amount of budget, not just for the, the hiring, mm -hmm. like getting projectors, equipment, yada, yada, yada side, but for content. So if you have a show where you're going to have like a whole bunch of like animated animals, I, I would do that in C4D, but even at the speed that I work, I wouldn't have time to like animate and model those because you could just... That's why 3D modeling is its own career. I could spend the entire production period just modeling a very nice bear and nothing else would get done. So if I have enough budget where I can buy a rigged bear model and then I just have to animate it or I can hire someone else to animate it and I just have to composite it and do the rest of the, the scene rendering, then you can, you can figure out how to speed up your workflow. And if you have enough budget, you can also pay for someone to do bits of your content that you've designed and, and sort of source different, different things from different places. Um, well, the, because, the budget part of that, I think is, the budget part of that I think is important. Like most directors have these really grand ideas of what they want, but when you say like, this is what it costs for the projectors, this is what it costs for the, uh, uh, rentals or the equipment or the licenses or whatever it is, they go, oh, that's too much money. I'm just not going to do projections at all. And I, I run into that more frequently than, than not. 
Yeah, and it's it's also like even things like let's say you want a whole bunch of interactivity in your show, but the rest of the video design is also really complicated. Your projection designer probably doesn't have time to design both. If they want, if you want both aspects to be really good, it makes more sense to hire an interactivity designer so that you can focus on the de cohesive design and someone else can focus on like the nitty gritty of getting your like black track system to work. And that's where you know, getting into the process early on to be able to identify creatively what the show might need and then have something you can go back to the production manager of the company. And, you know, we, we tend to, there's this expectation off, too often that you get engage a video projection designer that they are this magic box and pixels will come forth. <laughs> and as you get on the bigger scale show, you know, you're doing shows with millions and millions of pixels feeding LED walls and that kind of stuff. Like it just one person physically can't do it. And having that conversation with the companies and, and getting folks to understand that it's, you know, it's a design and the creation of it does need to be a different line item, either as resources to hire to farm out work to other animators or purchase stock and then, but still need to manipulate it uh, or just build a bigger team. And I, you know, you look at the, the way the commercial productions are going that a typical video table on a Broadway show has got eight or nine people on it. And sometimes another half dozen working away in the basement and that, you know, there's an investment that the content needs. If, if, if it's part of telling the story, there does need to be resources to require it in the same way that there's a shop often to help create the scenic pieces. The scenic designers, not they're painting it themselves and so on and so forth so and i it's been something i've struggled with and i think we all you know it's at three in the morning going how the heck did i get myself into this position being responsible for making all this stuff so being able to again open the door to that conversation and, and i think as time goes on for companies to expect that it's something that needs to be invested if it really is going to be an successful successful part of the show be it again gear resources uh, staffing, however it manifests for the particular production, because every show has a different way of flowing for this, but that's my rant. Yeah, I think another really important component that we haven't touched on specifically yet is this concept of visual styles in video design. So I worked on a number of projects with directors where, you know, I sort of present myself and my work, maybe they've seen something by me. And then partway through the process, they'll begin asking for things. And I think to myself, who do they, like, what, what designer are they talking to? You know, because just because I can do like, say great visual compository doesn't necessarily mean I'm a, um, a comic illustrator, which doesn't necessarily mean that I am a graphic animator, which doesn't necessarily mean. So this idea all the way back to my earlier story about the, the opera with the graphic designer who put together the video material, you know, there's all these different kinds of visual media styles, which can be presented with a projector. So unlike a light, which you can turn it on and you can like gel that light, it's always going to be, you know, it's always going to be a Fresnel or it's always going to be a Lico. You can kind of disguise it in the same way we are these kind of pixel hammers and we have our own styles and it's always going to influence the work we do. So I'm not suddenly going to be able to produce a video design that looks like, um, you know, something out of a comic book. But if that's the style, I could hire an illustrator to draw panels for me and then I could animate those panels or whatever. So there's so many different ways that we can uh, augment our style or, or build on our skill set. 
But at the end of the day, we are still artists and we still have our own thumbprint that we're going to be putting on the work we're doing. And so investigating, you know, how can you communicate about things like that, about visual style early on? Um, and then, and then not get yourself into a situation where they're asking for something from you that no matter how much time you had, you couldn't deliver because it's really just not your thing. And I think that in the last three years of my career, I've gotten a little more tuned into that. And I've been able to say really early on with some projects, you know, you actually need to call Amelia or you actually need to talk to Elijah because I'm really not the right person. I'm not the right tool. I'm not the right pixel hammer for this particular nail. Um, and, and sort of becoming like developing humility in that area and understanding what you do really well and what you're just going to hate and you're never going to actually give them what they need. Um, you know, and some people are more flexible than others too. I think it's interesting just to give it a historical perspective that when video started being incorporated into theater, not from a um, court, like the big corporate show or just doing IMAG on a, on a large show, but actually being incorporated into the art, uh, very often it was video artists who were used to working independently and they would be hired on because they, the director or the company liked their taste and thought they would serve the production or they could incorporate well and then they, but they weren't used to collaborating <laughs> and they weren't used to figuring out, working on the scale, for example, of a huge thing instead of a small gallery show. And so it is kind of remarkable that in the last probably 15 years as the technology's gotten better, uh, this role of projection designer has like has peeled away from set and lighting and, uh, and become its own thing. And I think we, we really, uh, it sounds like everyone's accepting that, but the budgets probably haven't changed. At the same time, you have this inverse kind of cone of budgets shrinking while this whole new department has happened. So you guys are in a real, kind of bind that way somehow. So I, I like the way of thinking about it differently like that and hiring the right person to do the right show, to do the right, to do the right job. Well, I want to jump on this cinematographer part of that, um, that, you know, projection designers are projection designers and cinematographers are cinematographers and the two can meet, but they, if they're a cinematographer that doesn't work in theater, it's very unlikely that they have the skills to implement that sort of uh design like the, that sort of projection design ideas um and in my recent history i've noticed that like if uh, projection designers can also work as consultants so if you want that uh if you like that cinematographer style or their content or whatever it is hire them but also hire a projection designer so they, they can help implement the show into a playable controllable consistently uh, reproduced event, right? Like, uh, there's a couple projects that I've been brought on to with cinematographers where they've been pulling their hair out because they don't know how to cue a show or they don't know how to talk to a stage manager and those sorts of things. So bringing on a projection designer when you bring on that cinematographer can help be that bridge from the film world to the theater world where we can facilitate those conversations with directors and designers and stage managers in language that they know and understand and then we can translate that theater language to the cinematographer into language that they understand um, and makes the whole process go a lot easier um, rather than trying to bring in a projection designer uh, at crunch time because your cinematographer isn't fulfilling the things that they thought they would be able to fulfill. Well, and the timelines, right? The timelines are completely different. So mm -hmm. that's what I've always run into with non-theater content creators is that 
you know, even people who normally work for print media, which would be like the next fastest, maybe. Deadlines. Right? Yeah, like the, like deadlines the concept <laughs> that the deadline is firm is, is alien. So we become these kind of translators. And I think as, as good theater designers, we're already doing that because we already know how to translate. You know, we speak one language for the shop. We speak one language for the director. We speak a different language for the production manager. We speak a different language for the stage manager. So it's, it's um, if we see that as our responsibility, like getting it to the stage in the most elegant, efficient way possible with all the humans involved feeling pretty good about themselves, you know, that's already a whole job aside from then content creating, system design, um, advising on gear. Like it just, you know, and everyone has a different um, specialty. Well, and that's, that's often what I end up saying. Like I can either yeah. liaise for you or I can design for you, but I can't do yeah. both. And you or can. I can do like these and three jobs, but these six other ones we have to farm out. Well, yeah. yeah and, but once I'm in the room as a consultant, I can't yeah. generate content for you because it's not my show. So I'm not acting as a designer then. And so yeah. understanding that like, there are roles we take on in the production and sometimes it's uh, content creation. Sometimes it's designer where you do everything, but sometimes it's not. And understanding what those roles are and, and what our responsibilities are in those roles um, so that we're not stepping on other designers toes. We're uh, committing, or sorry, we're fulfilling our commitments to the production, but we're still um, also protecting our work and our intellectual mm -hmm. property and our time. Um, you know, if I'm not hired to animate, I'm not going to animate for you because you're not paying me for that. Um, and I it think helps that, us be really nimble as entrepreneurs and, and professionals as well, because I don't know how often I love getting a call when I'm having like, you know, oh, I just finished a gig and I'm not in residency for a few weeks. And someone calls me, is like, can you do three days of content creation for me? I'm like, great. yes, please. That sounds great. I don't have to think about anything. You're just going to say, make it purple. And I do that. <laughs> and for the um, record, like I'm always open for content creation, oh, yeah, <laughs> especially if it's remote, I'm happy to do it. Yeah. Um, so those but kind that of idea really that just us. because I'm in the room and I have this skill set that I can just jump on the computer and animate something for you. I think that is another part of that education process that like, and that, I, I, that may not apply to everybody. I kind of, I take on a lot of different roles like projection, uh, production manager, designer, performer, whatever. And so really delineating like, this is what I'm here for and this is what I'm willing to do. If, if you want those other things, I'm, I'm able to do them, but they require another conversation and it's not just something that I'm going to do because I can. Um, and maybe I'm, I don't know how everybody else feels about that, but that's oh, like, 100%, something I try yeah. and stand pretty firm on. Yeah, no, hand me another contract and then- we'll <laughs> And I'll do whatever you want, yeah. right? Put it in writing and let's dance. <laughs> we have a good uh, question from uh, Cheng Yan in the YouTube chat that I'm gonna paraphrase, which is conceptually, how do you create content for a 3D space on a flat 2D computer screen? Sorry, to clarify, how do you generate 3D? Like how, do, how do you think about creating 3D content when you're just working on a two-dimensional screen? That's really changing. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I assume Sean's doing a ton of 3D visualization stuff now. He might want to speak to that. I'm starting to do a bit more at Stratford. Um, it's really changing how I work on a show. Um, but but uh, maybe you want to speak to that, Sean? Mute. It, it, yeah, it's definitely uh, a tool set thing. And uh, on the in the last couple of years, I've been involved in productions that had a lot of automated video elements. So uh, one opera, which was uh, 13 seven meter high by between two and three meter wide LED panels, all arrayed on tracks that could fly in and out, that could rotate independently, that kind of stuff. And, and the only way that you can even 
at least for my process to be able to wrap your head around is, is something like disguise, which is what we ended up using for that show. Um, photons, another one out there like that, um, which is what Stratford is using. And it's a very cool piece of technology. Um, but it, it, you know, it is a way to visualize the space and, and what's important in this for it is the visualization of the movement and how the layers change and how the, 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 stage that you're painting uh, can evolve physically and and it becomes also part of just previs as a as a concept i think is something that's really grown over the years and it's always been part of the conversation of how do you show what the video is going to do to the rest of the team early on in the process so the the fact that these tools are out there um has been a big evolution in in the craft um disguise is um kind of like WYSIWYG for video if you're not familiar with it it's a full 3d environment it's pixel accurate to the space um, it, it's kind of weird in how it goes together but once you've wrapped your brain around it, it it's a, a great way to be able to physically set up that 3d space and then be able to paint the layers on either directly or simulate projections throwing onto different layers within that environment so um, I, and I've even taken to using that as um, a way to play with space conceptually just to wrap my brain around a set and, and what the possibilities are, even if we don't end up delivering the show in disguise, because it is an expensive thing. Um, but uh, the designer license is not insanely expensive and it's free right now. If you're at all interested in it, I would heartily recommend uh, go to the disguise.one website. They're giving away, um, they have a discount on the, the license key you do need the little dongle, but it's like 50 bucks right now. And you can get a free license of it uh, till the end of October right now. And lots of online demos and tutorials. So I would encourage that. Playback software. And it's also, but you can also use it as uh, like previs, like to show to the team. Like it could be both. Yeah, it can be both. So there's a, the, you know, sorry, digging into the tech side of it. There are servers that drive the outputs when you're in a show environment, but you can also run it on a laptop with the producer license. So you're seeing that full 3D space. And when you're actually in a show environment, I take my producer laptop and I network it in with all the other servers. So I can be looking over the shoulder virtually of what the programmer is up to, see where the timeline's at, or start to manipulate within it, update cues. Uh, it's a, a different way of working, but it's a, a very powerful way of working. But ultimately, it's it's a great tool for being able to you know get that sense of what does this look like, and then communicate that with the director and the rest of the team. You render it out as visualizations for previews. Mm -hmm. uh, on one show, ended up pretty much building the entire all the automation moves. We had props of all the set pieces and then the physical props and furniture and that kind of stuff animating on and off and people coming in and out of the stage and all stuff like that. But as a way to discuss it with the group before we hit tech and got onto the stage, uh, it's a very powerful tool. So, and there are other tools coming out all the time. Every time I, you look on the Facebook groups, there's some other nifty company that's making this server somewhere in Europe that's starting to get used. So as time goes on, I think it becomes much more accessible for everyone. E again, even if it's not the mechanism that you use to deliver the show, it's at least as a way to develop your content and it, to be able to visualize it and communicate it with the rest of the team. So. Yeah, I thought it'd be cool for Sean to say that because Sean's working on like really large scale shows using like high end technology. And, and I think, however, the experience of like probably most people working with um, projection is that they don't have access to that. So there's a, like an entirely different process, I find generally 
uh, working on more, more on indie theater show than say working on a show on Stratford or a show on Broadway or a big opera show. Um, and I, I think that the, the short answer is like, not, you can't really see a lot until you see it on stage. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's probably true with even the, even the big technology shows to a certain extent, because there's something about being in the space and having the actors there and breathing and living it that, that changes things completely, even, even though you've seen it completely in, in a, in a computer. Um, so I think, um, if you have the time in, in tech to, to, to work moments, um, great because, uh, and if you don't, then I think it's also another way to like manage your own expectations of like what's possible. Um, because I think there's a certain amount of visualization that can't happen, you know, on the, on the 2d screen. Um, there's ways you can work around it you can do stuff. You can, I built, you know, mini the, the set in, in After Effects and just did like a really crude version that way in 3D and After Effects. And, or um, I've um, taken the pictures of the model and um, um, then put, put uh, corner pinned um, stuff inside of After Effects on top of the model, um, done it that way. Um, uh, there's, but, and, and a, a big part of also, just go back, a big part of being in the theater is also, how video uh, works with actual 3D objects and how it works with different materials, how it works with light, how it works with costumes, how, you know, so like there's, that's why there's so much that you, that you can't do in, in, on, a, on a computer screen. Um, so it's a bit of both. Uh, you, you have best intentions. And I think with experience, you can give an educated guess on like what it's going to feel and look like. Um, generally you're close, but sometimes you're completely wrong and that can be great. But, yeah, I would say in terms of like conceptualizing, that's something that just sort of comes from like time and experience in terms of like, I know where my projectors are going to be and what textile is going to be where and, and how I'm planning on wearing them. But if I want to show something to a director or other designers, I'll do all my previs in Cinema 4D um, because I have a lot of control over um, textures and bump maps and lighting and it's a tool that I'll use um, generally regardless of what design I'm doing if I'm doing set or lighting or um, video uh, if I'm doing all three it works even better because then I know all the elements um, but because it allows such a nuance of control in terms of getting a look it's also really good for when you're in your design process and you're trying to pitch like more feelings than necessarily strict images because you can control like the amount of haze that appears in a light and your little 3d people can be like in perfectly sculpted poses um and it takes a bit of time when you're first getting started but once you have a fast workflow and a lot of um, blocks in your in your library you can you can speed it up pretty fast but also because if you end up doing any UV mapping as part of your content delivery system if you have an accurate model in C4D already that can speed that up a lot because then you just have to start snipping all your polygons to get a nice flat map yeah and like never underestimate the power of the good old-fashioned lo-fi storyboard um, yeah, like that's something I still did up until only a cute couple years ago, like in a notebook with a, a glue stick. So actually like aside from understanding things in 3D space, but also understanding them through time in the show, 
Um, I found that storyboarding is like the number one tool I recommend to people when they're like, oh, how did you figure out this sequence or how do you conceptualize uh, in general that that still is the most powerful thing. And what I usually do now is again, if you're already the set designer, you're like way ahead yeah. because you already have all those files in your laptop and you're just like, Oh, whatever. Screenshot blue here, red here, done Photoshop. Um, but uh, you know, using 3d modeling now and being able to take shots from different angles and then superimpose things in Photoshop. And if that workflow is very quick for you, if you get fast at that, then you can pump out renderings of any moment in the show pretty much. And um, I found that that becomes like a really big language I, ha I use with my directors. So we're talking about a scene and I'll take notes and I'll say, okay, like in your inbox tonight, you're going to get four storyboards for the couple scenes we did today. And then they'll open the storyboards and they'll say like, oh yeah, that's exactly what I was imagining or absolutely not. We're not on the same page. Let's talk about these scenes again. Um, and that again, doesn't, I'm always a fan of talking about methods because I'm, don't have access to a lot of those tools in most of the projects I work on. So what are the super lo-fi? And I think at the end of the day, still, even if all you had was a pen and paper, you could still storyboard your whole show just in a notebook and you could get way further along than if you didn't do that work. So yeah. I think at the end of the day, it's like, how do we conceptualize in 3D space? Well, you have to do the work. You have to do that conceptual work. You can't sort of skip ahead and say, oh, we'll figure it all out in tech. Um, and what every single designer has mentioned here, regardless of what their tools are, is that they are doing the previs. Whatever tool they use, they're actually making the effort to, to work through the show. Um, yeah. yeah, like the, one of the best parts in the, in the process when you're in rehearsal is just like sitting down with a whole bunch of like, I usually print out a little like line sketch of the set, a whole bunch of copies. And then as like vibes are happening, something happens, you're like, oh yeah, there'll be a thing, it'll come in here. And then you're know, like, and there you get all these messy notes. And then to, hopefully your director is like pretty open to scribbles because then you can sit down and be like, yeah, so when that was happening, your owl like flew over this way and then you start to refine. But like a storyboard is for sure one of the, my favorite tools in terms of like figuring out the flow of a piece. Uh, Jamie had to leave us to put his child to bed. So thanks to Jamie for joining us tonight. Uh, we have a question in the chat from Simon Rossiter who said, uh, thinking about previs, are you collaborating with lighting designers much on integrated lighting and video previs? And what strategies are you exploring for this? I would just inject that there are, the tools for this are still evolving. Um, I saw a demo last fall of, uh, again, an offshoot of what Disguise does, and they've partnered with WYSIWYG and with the other companies that are doing lighting systems that have 3D visualization tools, you know, plug your console in and manipulate lights and beams and stuff in the air. And they've uh, basically created a, a language that allows you to connect these servers together and render out and composite all of this in real time. So lighting designer, video designer, server for each, and those two outputs are being piped and stacked up and a bunch of jiggery pokery happens and you get one unified thing and you could be playing through the show in real time. It's, it's definitely a, a big ass budget problem, um, but it's there and with all of these digital tools, you know, it, it starts here. It's how many years away are we from that trickling down and people coming up with better, faster, cheaper, cleverer ways of doing it so it's accessible to everyone. So it, it's there, but you still need the time to do that. I, I was involved with a, an opera company that 
everything was supposed to be about this being a digital pre-production kind of thing. And then it kind of backed off the last second. It didn't ultimately give the teams, the lighting, the different departments, the tools and the time to sit in that dark room and do all that work in advance of hitting the stage. So the, the, the workflow is evolving, um, but there needs to be a commitment. And again, hopefully as time goes on, the, it becomes more and more accessible for all. Yeah, and I mean, in terms of like a more low budget um, uh, method of working, um, it's like goes back to what we were talking about earlier and having just really open conversations with your other designers. So like, yeah, you don't want to uh, like do your lighting designer dirty by presenting, uh, you know, a plot uh, where there's just like 80 Fresnels in a grid and you're like, here's a video rendering. Um, so having those conversations so that everyone is on the same page and if you're presenting a previous rendering or a previous sequence, sure, the lighting, you're not going to like demand to get their plot and sit through with them and, and cut each little virtual light per se. But if they're like, yeah, I'm thinking blue side light, you'll throw some blue side light in it and it'll be like a step towards having something that's close to what they want, but shows the angle that you're looking for. I did a really interesting um, project collaboration right before, uh, that was interrupted by COVID actually. And um, I was really impressed because I, as a lighting designer, I don't do any previs. It's not part of my um, toolkit, but this was a designer who works uh, predominantly in concerts, uh, like rock concerts and uh, touring gigs. And so she's like a master at WYSIWYG. So I had produced a whole bunch, I did uh, 3D Vectorworks drafting for that set and had produced a whole bunch of renderings that show atmospherically, like this is where we're in this scene and this is what it looks like we're on this set. So, you know, as we're using different parts of the stage for different scenes, I had sort of pitched options for what it could look like in each location in the show or whatever. And that included visual imagery for video and the way the set was gonna be organized and stuff. And she sort of saw those and said, okay, well, you know, I have some questions for you about the angles on those platforms because there's massive video surfaces basically right behind like a second level. So that's a huge problem for a lighting designer because you <laughs> like the person standing there just like obliterates the video essentially. <laughs> so she did a really interesting thing where she just took my 3D model, I sent it to her in, in like a DWG form. And then she produced all these WYSIWYG renderings with those angles. So then I could sit down and we had her on the speakerphone and the director happened to be in the same city as me. So we sat down and looked at the, her screenshots and looked at my set. And that was really interesting to me in terms of kind of like a backwards previs thing where I had produced these Photoshop renderings that showed the vision. And then she was sort of able to kind of like guess and check like, okay, well, here's the percentage of that that's true and we can produce those shots. And here's the percentage of that that's like mm -hmm. sort of pie in the sky. And actually it's going to look more like this. And that was a really, really useful way to use previs because no one's sort of asking her to produce the entire show ahead of time, which I think is another big problem with previs. Like mm -hmm. what percentage of it do we do ahead of time? And, and, and I think my big issue with the really high-end previs stuff too becomes a bit of um, where's the trust building in that? Like if, if, if it's my job to prove to you what it's gonna look like on stage, that's a totally different relationship between the director and producers and the designers than if we're working as collaborative artists on the same level where I have trust that you're gonna come up with something and you trust that I'm gonna come up with something. Um, so I think that becomes a bit of a thing too, like what percentage of the show are you expecting to see ahead of time? Um, versus everyone's time, as Sean pointed out, because you could have that ambition, like in, the, in that case where you want the whole show ahead, and then, and then suddenly it's like, oh well, you're not going to pay everyone double. Okay, well then we're not going to do that. Well, yeah. Um, what kind of standard does that previs, like that whole previs done? What kind of standards does that set going into the future? Is every show going to have a previs, and 
if that's the case, like as designers, how do we take on multiple projects at a time if they're all being done before the project's actually being done, right? Mm -hmm. um, well, where are the good mistakes in that either is the other thing for me. Like most sorry, of the very, the... the good mistakes, like most oh, yeah. of the very best moments I've ever designed were totally by accident. And if yeah, you're asking me to revisit everything, happened. then there's no more happy accidents. Like no. my whole design career is gonna be like, you and me both, you and me both. Yeah. I would say though, that I personally use Previs more for myself than as like a tool to prove that like, oh, don't worry, I have every microsecond of the show planned out. Um, but like if I'm doing a lighting design and I know tech time is short, I'm gonna pre-build my show to a certain degree. Yeah, there'll still be room for happy accidents. There'll be room for tweaking. But if I can build it with a, with a nomad at my desk and augment 3D and have a sense of what everything is going to be looking at and building particularly effects, which take a lot more time to build them in the tech process, then when I step in to tech week, I'm already a day or so ahead. And same thing I find with, with video. If you're able to previs some things, I, I don't previs a whole video show. I don't have the, the time or the rendering no. power for that. But if there's moments where I want to see how things are looking in relation to other elements, yeah, they're still going to change, but I can save myself a little bit of time when I have the time versus in tech week where I definitely don't. Oh yeah, no, that, there are some really powerful tools out there for sure. Yeah, I'm yeah, like, oh, sorry. Go, no, go, go ahead, Cameron. Go ahead. Um, when it comes to previs, like I don't really do much of it. If if there's, like, I'll do, uh, I'll lay over a maquette or a SketchUp or a Vectorworks model. Um, if there's something that I'm not sure about how it's going to visually look in 3D space or how it's going to be composited, um, like, uh, in in real time. But in terms of visualizing the whole show, no, I have discussions, I have conversations, there's inspiration photos, but there's not necessarily a visualization mm -hmm. um, before I've started working on the project. Like, there are, or even in those early stages, it's more I'm taking in content that I want to be inspired by or that I think is an aesthetic that I might want to work in. Um, but it's really developing the language for myself so that when I try and translate that idea to a stage or to a director or another designer that I have the information that I need. But it's not necessarily like a pre-visualized, like we're doing James and the Giant Peach, this is, every, this is how every visual is gonna look, like here's the show. No, it's more like, here's some inspiration that I'm thinking of and here's some, uh, here's some things that you've given me that we've played off of, but how did those marry together and like what, what will the final outcome be? It's more suggestive, I guess, than, than stated at least in my my practice my practice yeah i guess it comes down to the fact that theater we haven't made all this all the decisions yet like tech week is not about putting a flat up and then doing the show mm -hmm. it's about yeah did that flat look right oh is that lighting like all of those ideas have been fleshed out and with concerts yeah. i mean this is why previs previs is about you know was a star in large um uh, concert uh, productions because all those decisions have been made. You've got to, the band is going to play the song that they played on the album a year ago and you're just designing the bits around it. 
and the band's going to look at it and go, no, nah, I don't like that. I, I, you know, I, I want that instead or the, or the, the concert manager or whatever, the tour manager, the production center. But the, ultimately, those decisions are made way in advance in theater and live events like that. They're not. They have to be made in the space. So Previs is about allowing you to make better decisions faster and have five extra things in your back pocket that you can pull out when they don't work, when those decisions actually, when the uncertainty collapses into a, into an answer on stage. So that makes total sense. Yeah. And the more prepared you are in terms of different contingencies, the more flexibility you'll have in tech time, um, which is, which is always helpful. And that like, I always try and start with a director or designer, other people that I'm working with that like, I'm not tied to any idea. I'll fight for it if I believe it's the right idea and I will put a hundred percent behind that idea. But if it's not right for the production or if it's not right in the director's eyes or it's conflicting in some way with the designer, another designer, that's all right. You drop it, you move on, you find another idea. Um, and I know with myself, like the longer I have to spend with an idea, the harder I'll fight for it. So if I do spend all that time doing previs on a show, like, I'm going to be way more stubborn than I already am. And I'm already too stubborn. So I was just going to say that previs can be a dangerous tool because you can get yourself kind of committed or sort of fall in love with things that aren't ultimately right. And it's and like and the, the computer's so perfect. Everything in the yeah, computer's so yeah. perfect. <laughs> and life is not perfect. And reality's no. not perfect. <laughs> not at all. All right. I find the complete opposite. Like if I have to design a set and build a physical maquette and I've spent the time with the little bits of foam core, like I'm way more attached to it versus I could do like 30 previs models in the time that it takes me to build one maquette. And it's like, oh, you want to change it? That's fine. That wall goes there now. Easy peasy. That's like totally switched for me. We didn't at UVIC, like Alan refused yeah. to let us do digital drafting. So I had to learn how to do it all by hand. So like all my, everything is done by hand. And so I'd rather not if I don't have to. <laughs> like, yeah, and that becomes all about personal preference, right? And what, what yeah. different designer skill sets are. So it's, I think this is a very exciting panel because literally every one of us is using different softwares in different Entirely. ways for different oh, yeah. reasons and like different uh, for processes different clients even. too, right? So yeah, and I, I don't think you see that same type of uh, wide ranging application in other disciplines like lighting or like sets or like uh, costumes, like it, sets become architecture when you build a house, right? Uh, mm -hmm. the, the definition of those disciplines changes when you put them in other places, but video design kind of melds and transitions between a lot of other arts, not just theater, like filmmaking and circus and dance. And we're kind of pulling all these disparate elements together um, in, in, in a really unique way. And that brings up what Jamie was talking about was this idea of setting the expectations. So teaching people who you are in this context, what you're going to produce for them, how you're going to produce it so that they understand. Because if someone's worked with Sean and then they suddenly work with me, they're going to be like, what? <laughs> this is what video <laughs> designers do, um, you know, or vice versa. So everyone in the, everyone here again and everyone listening has a different idea and expectation and skill set when it comes to video design and really understanding your own. I think that was a huge breakthrough for me was when I finally figured out what I was actually good at and stopped marketing myself as things that I wasn't talented in and was just like sort of had figured out to sort of get by and really started just saying, no, no, you just hired this person if that's what you want. Cause that's not my area. And um, like figuring out where my lane was, was a, not an easy process for me actually in this field because it's so brain, like broad ranging. Um, but yeah, being able to communicate about what you do well and how you're going to do it. So people know what to expect. is huge. Can I ask one really? Oh, no, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I was just going to ask a question just to sort of bring us into more of a conceptual land. 
the um, vi- um, the audience's visual vocabulary is changing, and it's changed for a whole bunch of different reasons. Um, I had a discussion with Mary Kerr about this because uh, just as a just as part of her her arc and she did large events like the uh, opening ceremonies of the uh, of a couple large games. But um, how, like, can you give me an idea of how you, how you think that's affecting what we're asking of theater designers? Like theater is theater. It is not anything else. We try to make, you know, lots of people have tried to blend it with other kind of art forms and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Um, but really it's its own little world and uh, of, uh, of expression. Uh, but you're asking an audience to sort of stretch themselves and to watch something and understand what you're doing. How do you uh, incorporate that? Do you, what do you pay attention to in the world? How is it changing? That's eight different questions all in one thing. <laughs> yeah. You like, can pick which one to answer. It would, I'll, I'll go first. It's a question that I've kind of asked myself in terms of like when I'm writing circus shows because they are like, I try and include some type of script or some type of language in them because they're otherwise they're very hard to pin down. But our audiences are so used to different styles of storytelling now, whether it's through music or through movies or television or Instagram or Facebook, like we're more open to accepting stories that come in non-traditional forms. Maybe they're non-linear or they're not stories that we're used to hearing or they're fables that uh, come from different cultures that we're not familiar with. Um, so we're, we're exposed to so much more content at a constant pace that comes from vastly different sources that I don't think we're asking too much of our audiences by kind of leading them down uh, alternative storytelling uh, methods. Um, at least in my experience, it's been that, that our audiences are smarter than we think they are, and we should give them more credit than we do, even though I think often we create to the lowest common denominator. Um, I think that lowest common denominator is very quickly rising um, in terms of how nonlinear and how, how different your storytelling methods can be. Interesting that you say that we create to the lowest common denominator, and I... I, I... Um, with respect, take exception to that, because I think that in, in the live presentation world, we actually cater to the highest common denominator and ask other people to catch up or ask other people to, um, people who, no audience member is incapable of, of coming up to the level that we asked of them. If we dumb it down, we're turning ourselves into television. <laughs> I want to clarify. I don't think in theater specifically, we dumb it down to the lowest common denominator. It's more in non-verbal storytelling situations. We, we try and make it as, e- at least in circus, we try and make it as easily accessible, as universally accessible okay. as possible. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sorry, dumbing it down was maybe the, not the right term, but accessible is. Um, but I think yes, one of the I things that, but sorry, I, I think one of the things that is great about theater, though, is that we ask people to step up to mm-hmm. that, and try right. and do something that they're not used to doing. In, um, you know, it's not really normal to walk into and sit down in a dark room and watch a bunch of strangers tell you a story, but it's an awesome experience if you're open-minded enough to let it happen. Mm-hmm. I, I would definitely agree with that. I would definitely agree with that. I think our audience has to become really used to, used to an incredibly sophisticated level of production when it comes to visual information. So even if you think about something like the kinds of websites that look dated 
you know, even websites mm -hmm. from two years ago all of a sudden look like they were made in 1991. Um, <laughs> so like very quickly, people are very, very attuned to visual language in a way they didn't used to be. So I think that we have to be very careful whenever a director approaches me about a show where they want something to look super contemporary, super fresh, super clean lines, super put together, I'm always terrified because the level of uh, knowledge, skill, time required to get something to that, that level in a theater context um, is almost never attainable. Um, whereas I worked with a director called Stefan Zabrowski and he had this concept of um, the decay of light. So if you just make something a little bit dirty, a little bit um, tampered with, a little bit human, people are going to respond to it more easily and they're going to be less uh, distracted by it. If it's supposed to look like Facebook and it doesn't look exactly like Facebook, it will distract the audience. But mm. if you make it look like a note somebody wrote to someone else on a piece of paper and you project it, then they recognize that as having a human hand in it. And so there's a level of forgiveness or a level of empathy or a level of engagement with that material that's gonna be totally different than like a text message bubble that appears. Because if it doesn't look exactly like the text message bubble they've looked at 65,000 times that day, they're gonna be like, oh, that looks crappy. Um, so I think finding those ways in which visual language, um, if you don't get it exactly right, it can be incredibly jarring for people and take people out of something. Um, so I'm always pushing for showing some people something they haven't seen before. Let's not try and recreate something. And then other designers I know have a totally different perspective on that. But to me, I think with the resources we have, we need to be incredibly attuned to how what we're making will either um, bring people into the story or make them feel like, oh, well, this is just a low budget, crappy, no, it doesn't look good. Um, you never want someone walking away thinking that they just saw a PowerPoint, right? So like, <laughs> no, definitely it's not. like what I think Cameron, you said it earlier, like really good video design, you don't even notice it. Like yeah. I always love the feedback of like, oh my God, how did that, I felt like I was in a dream, you know? Was like that a gobo or was that a video? Yeah, yeah, like, like you know, the, the lines are totally blurred. Like that, that's always in my, um, in the work I've seen and the work that I've produced for myself has been more meaningful. So just being super aware that the visual language that we can understand now is super sophisticated. Mm -hmm. um, and we can interpret so much so quickly that we need to be really um, aware of that. We're getting close to the end here. And there's one final question that I want to get to, which is, do you think the COVID-19 quarantine and the prospect of socially distanced theater in the future is going to affect the process of how video design works? I think fundamentally the way all design and theater works is going to be changing until we have a vaccine or a treatment that is worth, that works essentially like I'm personally not comfortable meeting in groups larger than my immediate family for the foreseeable future because I do have older parents that are at risk if they catch it. And there are so many ways that we don't, there are so many things we don't know about it that until we have a concrete or a more, a better, a, a more concrete understanding of it, the way we do everything has to be reassessed. Um, like I, I, we were supposed to be doing a show last week at the circus school and the last three months i've spent my time trying to figure out how we even get our setup or how do we rig our equipment like how do we bring people together to produce a show uh when you can't be close to each other um so yeah i think i think it's fundamentally going to change i don't know how it is but i think it, it, it's crossable 
I, I, I know this is a really pessimistic take, but I'm very curious to see what happens when we do get back up on our feet as, as a business. You know, as someone who I, I only do video and projection, and that is a, a discipline that is often, you know, it's the cherry on top or it's a little bit, and, and, and because so many companies right now are just struggling to survive and exist. And, and you know, there's an expectation that not everyone's going to make it out of this. Uh, um, not all the companies that exist right now are going to come back. Um, are we going to see a trend to the work that does get commissioned when things start to go up and up? You know, will there be uh, fewer shows or fewer bigger shows with video versus you know, the more traditional, if you will, uh, ways of storytelling? And is there going to be a drop off? I, I, I hope that's not the case, but yeah. there's certainly a scenario where you could imagine production companies just going, you know, come up with a different way to tell the story because that's just one extra layer of technology and, and staff and people that you know yeah so I, I, again i hope it's not where we end up but uh it's well, will it perhaps become more important because the way that we tell the stories changes and that the skills that the people who are in this panel and many people who are watching have actually become key to the telling of the story instead of just being in summary and then add on at the end but then yeah. it's the question is like is it still theater or we don't very good question that, absolutely right yeah. like yeah I, I when i go to a theater show and this is something as a designer i'm sure we all struggle with how do we make sure that our audience isn't watching a movie right like mm -hmm. even as transitional cues how do you make that feel theatrical and and in necessary to be there to watch yeah, right I agree. Um, as soon as we start removing those live performers or, or shifting to uh video in times of not being able to meet where are we still making theater the thing that really interested me about this whole thing is last year at the Prague Quadrennial, um, massive amount of the performances and uh, activities you could attend as an audience member, so shows people were putting on or exhibits or whatever, they were like AR, VR, or they were these environments where like one or two people walked through at a time. And I remember thinking the whole conference, I went to very few performances because I thought this is such a BS trend. Like, I don't yeah. want to go through by myself. That's not why I'm here. If I wanted to be by myself, I would sit at home and watch Netflix. I want to experience it with other people. I want something communal. And yet all the trend, like all, especially the young performers, like the, all the Damu, like the school exhibit performances, they were all for like one or two participants. And it was really hard to get into them as a result. So there's a lot of these lineups and stuff. And then when all this pandemic stuff started happening, I was like, had goosebumps because I thought this is some kind of predicted thing where like the younger generation of theater makers, at least a lot of these like European schools had brought their young students over presenting this work. They were already going this direction where they're presenting for like what person this is the this is the experience and they're controlling every element of it. So I, I mean, think it's a huge problem. Like how as theater makers does that align with our values or does it not? And does that mean there's gonna be a new generation of people creating work that aligns with those pandemic values. Well, the I last don't, like, us oh, fall away. Emily, Emily, go ahead. I was gonna say, I don't think that theater in a communal sense and these like kind of bespoke individual experiences also have to be mutually exclusive. And that we need to look at COVID in terms of a timeline. So, I mean, yeah, it would be great to get back to being able to make big communal pieces a, a theater, but that's obviously not going to happen for a while. So how does our process evolve with that 
perhaps being an end goal. And as a side note, there's a whole bunch of theatrical practices that we should be looking at changing anyway in the way that our institutions work. Mm -hmm. And now is a really good time to sort of hit the reset button because a lot of the time when you say like, hey, why can't we have more time? Why aren't we prioritizing uh, artists' mental health in different scenarios? It's like, well, this is a schedule that we have. It's been booked. And well, now nothing's booked. So <laughs> now's the time to change those. But yeah. if we're looking at like a timeline, I like in terms of feeling a sense of human connection with theater, which I think is a lot of the draw, um, Rumble Theater did a really cool piece last week where there was maybe 10 or so people on at a time. You couldn't, you could only talk by chat in very specific moments. And like the piece definitely had flaws, but the, you did get the sense of connection with people through the internet, even though you could only communicate via text. And there was like a really, really beautiful sense of connection that was fostered there. And I think that instead of going, oh, we're in a digital age and like, we're not gonna be able to see people and like everything's awful, COVID, blah. Um, now's the time to really look at how we can reinvent our art form and how we can create experiences that despite there being physical barriers between us still connect emotionally and intellectually um, and then, you know, like once we're able to meet in small groups, how does projection help create a whole giant world when you can only have one or two people in a room together? Because unlike other disciplines, that's one thing that video can do so, so well. If you have someone in an AR environment or a VR environment, you can put them anywhere. And that doesn't mean that you have to exclude other people. You could have people all across the world wearing vibes connecting in the same virtual space. So I think it's more about shifting how we look at theater and how we can create new theater with these restrictions versus pushing against them and fighting against them. And one day, hopefully we'll have a vaccine and we'll all be able to meet in big spaces together and that'll be great. But until then, there's like really only four words. Well, Aaron, uh, your point about VR is really interesting. The, the, I wasn't at the last quadrennial, but I went to the one before and Robert Lepage gave a speech on how VR companies have been going to Ex Machina to learn about VR. And I remember there was alarm in the room at the time because people were saying, you know, that's not theater, but VR companies were approaching theater practitioners and theater makers because we're used to creating immersive environments. And so, uh, Emily, I think you're right that VR and AR provide opportunity for those immersive uh, experiences that theater people are great at creating and projection designers especially especially are great at creating um, so I don't think we should discredit them but I think there's a fine line between like I'm a theater artist I'm not a video game developer I'm not a modeler those sorts of things and so there's once we start blending those things in there's uh, the fear at least on my part that like oh I don't have those skills am I going to fall out of favor or am I going to be able to continue this work without learning those skills um because those those aren't technically theater skills like 3d modeling and cinema 4d and even video design wasn't a theater skill to start so how do we how do we stay relevant while that happens uh, if we don't have those skills already i think it op opens up an interesting opportunity though in terms of what you were describing before with um cinematography and being a consultant so mm. if you have game devs who are like, oh, we want to create a, an experience where people feel really connected and really human and it has a storyline. 
they don't necessarily have that experience either, you mm -hmm. know, because that, that trade-off also happens where just because you can model and develop a game doesn't mean that you can create human connection amongst your players. So I think that right. there's an opportunity to reach out to indie game companies and have a bit of rapport on how you could create an experience that you can help with the dramaturgical story side and they can help with the technological side and finding relationships and like a symbiotic relationship there. Well, the last question would be is like, video games cost millions of dollars. <laughs> Cedar does not have that kind of money, so how do we marry that? Uh... But it's, it's coming fast because there's, you look at what's happening in the concert touring world and what's happening in the, in the bigger commercial stuff and there's tools like Notch and Unity and, mm -hmm. and we're very quickly getting to a time where really? video content is not going to be something that got built in After Effects. It's something that the environment got modeled and yeah. the, in the theater you're manipulating what the server is doing but you're doing it in real time and it actually it you know it's scary on the idea of gosh there's this whole other skill set and stuff you know, all these tools that you got to keep learning but you know hey that's part of the fun um true, true. it is part of the fun but, but well, it also like, you know it creatively opens up all sorts of opportunities you know like the, the way we work that uh, being able to manipulate the visuals in response to what the orchestra is doing whether actors hitting marks that kind of thing it just expands the tool set greatly so it's it's you know, i actually it, just did coming. a, a great workshop as a performer with uh, uh, Pepper's Ghost and uh, Animatrix out in Burnaby. We had like motion capture circus and it was one of the coolest things that I've ever done in my <laughs> life. And like, I wasn't a video designer. I wasn't, I was there strictly as a performer. And I could see that that is like, it's coming. It's the future. It's going to be here. But as a designer, like as a performer, I'm like, fuck yeah, that sounds awesome. But as a designer, I'm like, okay, I don't have those tools, but I want those tools. Does it mean I have to go back to school or like what kind of, and I guess I'm asking this to the other designers on the panel, like, where did you learn these tools? Like, how did you learn the model or how did you learn uh, pre-visualization? Those sorts of things. Like, was that something you did in school or? So I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step in for a second because we have to wrap it up. And I think that that's oh. a great place to end because I think the next time we meet <laughs> is uh, we should have a conversation about pre-vis and we should have a conversation about ARVR because uh, uh, they're so, people are still exploring how to use them and when they're important and when they're useful. And uh, I think that's, that's going to be a in, really interesting conversation. But it's been and 90 I'll minutes. I'll just very quickly plug the fact that yes. the ADC is um, actually producing a series of workshops now for members and non-members. So if you're interested in getting new skills, um, people like Emily Susanna are on my list of recruits to actually do Zoom sessions that you can do from your home. So we're calling this uh, ADC Professional Development at Home. Um, and we're going to be run, rolling those out like as early as next week through the whole summer. So if, so if you want to learn C4D, if there's topics you want to learn about, you should email mentorship at ADC, uh, sorry, mentorship at designers.ca and um, send us your feedback about things you want to learn. Cause we, we are trying to actually create those opportunities because we all have time. Well, we don't all have time, but we're, I think a lot of us <laughs> are hoping to develop some new skills and a lot of us feel the desire to do that. And if we, yeah can then we're going to try and promote that and you can see connor's little adc banner there so anyways yeah. thank you for giving me a moment to plug that i know we're out of time. no that's that's exactly where i was going does anybody else have anything else they want to plug websites people should go to to see their your work or workshops or follow escapist entertainment on uh, instagram and i will post the video from the animatrix motion capture circus workshop in the designers guild or where would be a good place to post that 
Uh, Designers Guild, great place. You can send me a link as well, and I'll include it in the show notes. Okay, great. Yeah. If we're plugging things, follow potato cakes underscore digital on Instagram, and you can see the installations I make for my cats. <laughs> I, I want to do that. Fantastic. <laughs> um, and the last one is Circus West. We have lots of fun projects coming up that we're working on. The next that we're hoping to get going is like a walking tour circus show uh, on the grounds of the Peony. Um, if you're in the Lower Mainland. So keep an eye out for that coming up. Not soon, but soonish. Once the government says it's okay. <laughs> Fantastic. All right. Well, thank you. This was another great discussion. Thank you so much, for Connor, for putting the group together. And thank you all for joining us here once again on the Block Live. I will... Uh, I, I uh, will be releasing this on the podcast stream uh, probably tonight because I've got that all set up. I was working on that earlier when you all were having a fantastic discussion. So that'll be up on the, uh, on the feed very soon. Uh, um, uh, as well this weekend, I'll be releasing uh, the interview I did with Michelle Cutler. Uh, and uh, that'll be an interesting discussion about uh, our compositional and sound design work. And uh, then Connor will be the next title block uh, interview and that'll be coming up uh, a couple weeks. I'm moving next week. There won't be a um, live stream because I am moving to Kingston uh, and I'll be very busy for a few days. Um, as, but the following week, in two weeks' time, we'll be meeting back here and probably circling back to some of the other disciplines uh, and we'll be continuing this every Thursday um, as long as there's interest and as long as uh, we have access to uh, such fantastic designers like, uh, like y'all. So thank you so much for joining us. And uh, we'll see you next time on the okay. title block. Thanks everybody. Thank you. Thanks for all Thanks. Thanks. <laughs> nice to see you. Bye everybody. Bye. Bye.